You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Our guest today is Dr. Nels Ewaldson, and he will be talking about putting new caries management technique options into your practice. Dr. Ewaldson owns and operates Conservative Dental Solutions, a private practice in Waveland, Indiana. He is the former director of new technologies at GC America and clinical research director for Densply Prosthetics. He is a published author and lecturing clinician with a primary focus on the atraumatic management of acute caries using fluoride compounds and fluoride releasing restoratives. Uh, pleasure to have you back on the program, Dr. Ewaldson. Thank you, Dr. Klein. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, so we're excited to hear about uh, putting these caries management techniques into a dental practice. So if we could start by this question, just if you would describe the clinical steps you follow when placing an ITR, an interim therapeutic restoration in your practice. Interim therapeutic restorations, it's a relatively new code in current dental terminology, but those restorations were described by the Academy of Pediatric Dentistry as a expedient means of intervening in early, severe early childhood caries. Um, ITRs are done based on the atraumatic restorative treatment approach. The atraumatic restorative treatment technique developed by World Health Organization uses a spoon excavator, a couple different sizes, a pair of college or cotton pliers, a mirror and an explorer. There is no local anesthetic. Carries lesions are accessed. Sometimes an enamel hatchet is needed. Um, in my practice, I usually use a 330 burr, but <clears throat> ART was developed for use in rural areas that had no infrastructure for modern dental equipment. No electric services were available. No plumbing infrastructure was available. So these art restorations were often placed outdoors. But it's difficult sometimes to get to the pod of caries, particularly in an occlusal lesion because we've got this mineralized enamel and we have to get through that enough that we can use the spoon excavator laterally to excavate caries. But we start at the periphery of the lesion. And if somebody's never done an art filling, find a class five and take the spoon excavator and engage right at the periphery of the lesion and start slowly separating the caries pod from the surrounding tooth structure. And what's amazing is right when the pressure is applied and the stainless steel is sensed by the tooth, the patient might say, ooh, ooh. But as soon as that caries pod is cleaved from the cavity, the patient says, oh, my gosh, the tooth is no longer then sensitive. So atraumatic restorative treatment technique often is done with no local anesthetic. Similar mm, with interim therapeutic restorations. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because um, it seems like once the cavity prep was, um, or the, whatever's you want to term it, it's not really a cavity prep that's created through rotary instrumentation, but as you scoop out the decay, you'd think that the patient would still have pain just by scraping the metal instrument against the remaining dentin just because of the, the tubules transmitting the, the fluid to the nerve complex in the in the pulp why is that why do you think that is that the pain stops once that decay is removed i think it's oxygen i think suddenly this septic acidic environment where we've got these facultative anaerobes i think suddenly the chemistry changes now i will say don't immediately proceed 
toward the pulp with your excavation, work on lateral extent of carries at the DEJ, clean your cable surface margin, because ART fillings can be done with a good cable surface seal against carries-free proximal walls, and the glass ionomer cement that's going to be the restorative material is sufficient to chemically seal and then to also protect any caries-affected dentin that remains along the pulpal floor. So we're, we're um, excavating, we're addressing caries laterally, and we would like to have as clean a pulpal floor as possible. But a spoon excavator is a good tool because it will not remove healthy dentin, whereas rotary instrumentation will. So we're we're relying on the safety net of not being able to invade too deeply into the tooth. And of course, the patient will let you know when you've crossed the barrier. And we occasionally do use things like covenase across the anterior restorations. These patients are always dentophobic because they've neglected their condition because of their dentophobia. But covenase is uh, a non-injected local anesthetic that has been effective. Um, sometimes we'll do an articane infiltration. Topical anesthetics in the cavity preparation haven't worked well. That's why in an earlier podcast, we addressed the possibility of using papaya gel, which is a great enzyme for removing caries-affected dentin and cleaning the cavity. Right. So what determines uh, art uh, as far as the type of uh, the level of disease inside the, inside the tooth? Like radiographically, you, you, you take an image and then you look at it, and obviously if it's too deep, you're not going to go this method, right? Because you'll expose the pulp with the hand instrument if it's really deep. Um, more and more, if that tooth has not given the patient any discomfort, and the questions I ask, has it woke you up at night ever hurting? Uh, when food gets down in it and you are able to brush it clean or rinse your mouth, does any discomfort immediately cease? Is it prolonged sensitivity to cold? If there's any sensitivity to hot that resulted in them having to take a oral analgesic, it's game over. That that right. pulp's okay. gone. So what you're, but, it sounds like to me, as an endodontist retired, it, if it's an irreversible pulpitis diagnosis, then it's game over. You don't, you don't, that, I mean, that's that's going to say we're not going to go the hand instrument way, right? That's ex yeah. That's so. exactly correct. And there's always the possibility of the fact that the pulp's already necrotic. So we look carefully for a fistula and on deciduous teeth we're going to look right at about the furcation if it's a molar uh, we're going to look toward the end of the root depending on the edge of age of the child dry with air really good and look for a fistulous tract you do not want to place an achromatic restorative treatment filling in a tooth that's already necrotic so you that really you really have to get a uh, you know you really have to pulp test the tooth to some extent right um pulp Pulp testing the tooth is certainly a reliable way to confirm vitality. It's just time-consuming. Okay. And it introduces another piece of equipment. And sometimes, as you know, a pulp test can... Uh, false positive. Yeah, false positive as well as stimulate some patient <clears throat> um, apprehension because we tell them it's a 9-volt battery. We used to hold those against our tongue and determine if they were going to run our transistor radio. But holding it against the tooth that's been intermittently sensitive uh, can can give the patient a jolt. So we we uh, um, we don't routinely do pulp tests, but I do look for a fistula. We do look at the radiograph, and then if there's enough caries that 
I think, wow, you know, I can't get to the bottom of that, but I can get a good surface seal. I'll go ahead and place the ART glass ionomer, and I will call that an interim therapeutic restoration. Stepwise caries removal is a treatment technique that pediatric and conservative dentists have used for a long time. Get rid of most of the surface caries, get a restoration in there that will remineralize and seal, go back later after the pulp has receded a bit, things have calmed down, the bacteria have been arrested that were advancing the lesion. And so stepwise caries removal is the note I would make in my chart. The code that I would put is an interim therapeutic restoration. And the only caveat I'll tell or share with our audience is ITRs technically only can be done in deciduous teeth. So that's a D2941 code, and that will not be reimbursed if you code that for a permanent tooth. So a sedative filling would be the other way to code it, a D2940, now called a protective restoration. But those are one in some insurance reimbursement, you get one of those a lifetime. It's like an occlusal guard. Well, for heaven's sakes, these people have uh, more than one lesion. And the the economics of treating teeth with this technique, we'd like to treat as many teeth as possible. And it's typically a patient that has multiple advancing caries lesions that we want to get in, rapidly excavate, rapidly provisionalize before we can even come up with a reasonable treatment plan. Right. So that's mm-hmm. where art helps me. No, no, uh, that's very, very good information. So we hear a lot about xylitol. Why has xylitol not become the sucrose substitute gold standard for caries control? I scratch my head about that every day. When you look <laughs> at how different xylitol is compared to the other polyols, some call it an alcohol. It's technically a sugar alcohol. And, The way xylitol got introduced to dentistry is in Finland, not that different a decade earlier, but not that different than our North Slope Alaska problem. If people are familiar with the North Slope Alaska problem, we had a population of uh, patients that were native living in a very remote area, which was not well serviced by dentists. And these people suddenly got exposed to a dietary shift instead of, uh, pardon the stereotype, but reindeer, meat, and whale blubber, they suddenly had Skittles. And the oral hygiene practices and the susceptibility to caries kind of made this perfect storm of rampant caries lesions. Well, the same thing happened in Lapland, and only it happened uh, 20 years earlier. And in the very Nordic part of Finland, where birch trees grow, and xylitol is easily extracted from birch wood, Xylitol is naturally occurring, and it was the only non-sucrose sweetener available. So they said, well, let's do some interventions on this group of people living in a remote area. Let's use um, APF gel. Let's use fluoride varnish. Let's use chlorhexidine varnish. And this control group, because it's unethical to leave an untreated control group, let's give them gum. Well, it just so happened that that gum had about a gram of xylitol per mm-hmm. stick. And the mothers who chewed the gum, the kids who chewed the gum, had 70% fewer caries mm-hmm. than all of the other self-applied interventions. So in the 1990s, this set the scientific community on its ear because, oh, my gosh, we can actually 
do better with a naturally occurring sweetener than we can with these therapeutic interventions we've been relying on and intended to test to see which one was best. Well, gum won. So Cinderella went to the prom. This is this is a fantastic story. The group that was expected to show the least improvement got the most improvement, and it didn't just happen for the patients. It happened across generations because mothers with bad teeth inoculate their children through the transmission of strep mutans, virulent strep mutans, sharing a pacifier, wetting a spoon, kissing the child. Caregivers, not just moms, inadvertently inoculate their child. So that's why mother's oral health and child's oral health can be very closely related. Xylitol interrupted that transmission. So it became what I thought was going to be the new sweetener that we'd see on shelves in the U.S., and we haven't. Mm-hmm. And Eva Soderling, who was part of the original study, Mackinnon, who has published The Rocky Road of Xylitol, are scratching their heads saying, what is up with this? While many replication studies have been done, the replication studies sometimes use different polyols, sorbitol, erythritol. Not that those are bad things, but they don't do what xylitol does. Mm -hmm. And because xylitol became so popular suddenly, and birch trees aren't everywhere. Here in Indiana, we get our xylitol from corn. And there was the early concern that xylitol extracted from corn was not as pure, not going to be as effective as xylitol from birch bark. And you'll see arguments on the Internet about the purity and molecular identification is certainly possible. And they know what xylitol is. So you can identify the molecule. But is it as effective if it didn't come from a birch tree in Finland. And I think we're over that argument, but there have been all kinds of challenges saying, hey, you guys in Finland, uh, you did a study, and even though they replicated it in Sweden, in other European countries where polyols had just begun to be marketed, they had sugar substitutes, naturally occurring sugar substitutes on the shelves, but they didn't have xylitol. They had erythritol, they had sorbitol, they had mannitol. So those companies immediately said, we don't want this xylitol stuff. Get it out of here. Right. So it just didn't fit the commercial model for them. It did not. And that's a good way of putting it. It didn't fit their commercial model, uh, model. And for that reason, xylitol, I believe, has been disparaged. It is important for the listeners and for everybody with a dog to know xylitol cannot be digested by dogs. But some of these, so it's when the grandkids are over, every cookie, everything my wife bakes, she bakes with xylitol, unless it's cake icing, and xylitol doesn't work in cake icing, but it works very well as a baking additive. You can just substitute it for granulated sugar, but we have to tell the grandkids, dogs can't get what ha- a piece what happens of if a do- What happens if a dog ingests something with xylitol? Um, it depends on the amount of xylitol, but small amounts can be dangerous. It messes up the insulin metabolism. Uh, so insulin regulation and metabolism, I think it puts the dog into insulin shock, Ooh. but it can be fatal. So yeah. xylitol needs to be uh, managed carefully when you're around pets, and dogs uh, certainly are susceptible to it. So we do watch for that. There's there's some um, young person, young individual that uh, created a xylitol lollipop. Uh, his, I think his father was a dentist, or I'm not sure. And did you hear about this kid? Or... Absolutely. And uh, we ordered for our trick or treat that's coming up here in a couple of days. Uh, we ordered uh, those xylitol lollipops, and we've already sampled them. Uh, here's the thing with xylitol: they've put it in syrup. 
Uh, they've put it in things that pass over the teeth fairly quickly and into the gut. They, xylitol can change the microflora of the gastrointestinal tract. And there was a little bit of a, this is more hype than reality, but a little bit of concern that it might cause diarrhea. It does upset the gastrointestinal flora, which rebalances itself pretty quickly. But um, some people say, oh, xylitol causes uh, some cramping and I, I've got diarrhea. Um, I think that that is at uh, most 10%, and it's very short term. Uh, my grandkids and everybody in my house um, that comes in, I say, you know, if you're worried about xylitol, this has xylitol in it. Um, I've not seen that even in my population. I treat about 50% Amish, and they have their own food stores. Xylitol's on the shelf, and I tell them every time I go in there, thank you for putting that on the shelf. They recognize the advantage. It is more expensive than sugar, mm-hmm. but it kills the bacteria that cause tooth decay, pure and simple. And it takes a long time. I'm not going to say it never happens, but it takes a bad diet, bad oral hygiene, and a long time for that oral microflora to become virulent strep mutans and cariogenic again. Xylitol changes the biofilm. It's incredibly important. Uh, you can add it to chlorhexidine. It controls caries. I think it should be added to fluoride varnish. I think it should be the sweetener in every dental product. I think xylitol is underutilized, and I think it's gotten a bad rap in the U.S. market and around the world. Grocery stores simply aren't interested in carrying it. Truvia and Stevia get on the shelf. They can't get xylitol on the shelf. And what's the bad rap? What is that based on, the cramping and the upset stomach? Yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, that's what it, it stems from. Um, I just don't get it other than, um, oh, there were potato chips years ago that uh, Olestra, the Olestra potato chips. Yeah. I loved them because I tend to, you know, kind of over snack and be mm-hmm. a chubby guy. And I could eat a ton of those because the, the fats in them were absolutely safe. And as soon as the rumor came out, oh, don't you know, those give you the runs. It was like the product immediately disappeared Just, from the shelf. And I said, yeah. bring it back. Bring it. Well, I miss it. I, I think um, to get a better marketing program, uh, for xylitol would be a great step forward. We've got xylitol gum on our counter. Spry is the brand that we have out for patients. I've got my xylitol suckers. Every time I can promote xylitol, I do. And I've yet to have a patient come back and say, I had a serious problem. I do warn them about the dog uh, problem. I do warn them about the gastrointestinal possibility of upset. But xylitol is something that I think needs to be in every dental office if you have high caries risk patients. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about silver diamine fluoride in a previous podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the off-label use of SDF, silver diamine fluoride, and also fluoride varnish for that matter, in the context of patient safety? Whether this is good or bad, I don't know. Um, I worry a little bit every time I use something off-label, but when I try to stick to the label use indications, I find that I'm already off-label. And those two products are classic examples. They're both tooth desensitizers. Now, Elevate Oral Care, the Advantage Arrest SDF, did tell me at one of their recent meetings, they said, we're going to make a therapeutic claim to the Food and Drug Administration, and we're going to be called a caries arrest material. I do not believe that's happened yet. But there are quick ways for desensitizers to be clinically validated, and then you write a claim that it desensitizes the tooth, but then you promote the fact 
that it can remineralize the tooth, which is why it desensitizes the tooth. Mm -hmm. And it's used then for remineralization when, in fact, desensitization is what it was primarily indicated for. So off-label use of things like fluoride varnish, which is also a desensitizer. Wow. Okay, we're we're using it and billing it as a caries prevention uh, fluoride treatment. Is that unethical? No, that's allowed, but it is considered an off-label use. I will give patients, responsible patients, after an education <laughs> program, I will give the caretakers or I will give the actual patient fluoride varnish. And they're up to now three-month applications professionally. Fluoride varnish is a safe uh chemicals we can put on a tooth because it's time release. So even if you swallowed the entire packet, you can't get enough fluoride into your stomach to cause fluorosis. It's it's a one-time immediate exposure that sustains itself over a period of days or even weeks. So to put fluoride varnish on a tooth and say, well, if you overtreat the tooth, the patient could have fluoride toxicity is not likely to happen with fluoride varnish. But concerns were, hey, this stuff is flavored and we're painting it on the teeth and there's no easy way to spit it out of your mouth. So what happens if you overtreat the patient? Let's give them one treatment every six months. Well, now they're saying one treatment every three months if their eye carries risk. If I've got a patient with xerostomia and root caries, I'm telling them apply it every month and here's how to do it. After effective brushing, dry blot the root surfaces, paint this on. I'm going to allow you to do this. You don't have to come in and see me. I tell the patient that's an off-label indication, but I am 100% confident that we are not toxifying patients. It's generally an adult patient, but let's take perhaps a cerebral palsy uh, child. I tell mom, you don't have to come back and see me. Use the electric toothbrush, blot the teeth dry, but we need extra caries protection. Here's how to apply this. And it's safe, it's effective. You don't have to be in a dental operatory to do it, but by Indiana law, technically that is a dentist applied material or a dental auxiliary that has had training in fluoride application, hygienist or expanded function dental assistant. Right. So it, it, yeah. going off label, we have the right to do that as licensed practitioners. We just have to inform our patients this is an off label use. And because our uses become so habitual, so practiced, so um, implied by the manufacturer, we're using things off label that we don't even realize are off label right. sometimes. No, absolutely. So uh, just to wrap up this podcast, my last question is, so to what extent should caries risk assessment influence caries management protocols? It's everything. And I feel bad putting this program together without starting it with caries risk. We've had a couple of these podcasts and I should have started it with caries risk. Mm -hmm. So, Phil, that is a great question because caries risk management carries risk, carries management by risk assessment. CAMBRA is the standard now. And the American Dental Association carries risk assessment form is in my office. We use it. We use it to the point that uh, we don't often think about it. But in my tunnel vision, I have a very homogenous patient clientele. I'm in a very rural spot in Indiana. I think it's 45 miles, two directions before the next dentist office. Uh, I think in the other two directions, it's somewhere between 30 and uh, 15 miles to the next dental office. Most of my patients come to the office by buggy. They're Amish. And so I'm treating a very isolated, but a very homogenous population. And 
because they do have indoor plumbing, but they do not have bathrooms that represent our bathrooms. They do not have a toothbrush holder that will hold 15 toothbrushes. And we have a number of families that have 15 children. Um, so I'm looking at a rural population where the education level is at about eighth grade. These are wonderful people. These are these are faith-based lifestyle individuals who I love being able to work on. But by all of the Carey's risk predict predictor criteria that have nothing to do with what we find in the mouth, they have to do with socioeconomic factors. It's a $20 an hour uh, workforce that surrounds my office. It is a relatively uneducated uh, patient that enters my office. It's somebody who's culturally not connected to any modern uh, pharmaceutical conveniences, including even a toothbrush. And so everybody that comes into my office is high carries risk. Mm -hmm. And we know that coming in. Every once in a while, we'll see somebody do a we offer a free uh, first exam by year one, and we do the knee-to-knee -knee exam, and every once in a while we'll see an absolute carries-free kiddo, and we pop the cork and celebrate. It's a day of jubilance. <laughs> um, when I see fluorosis, we're naturally deficient in our fluoride levels, and everybody's on a well. When I see fluorosis, I think, thank God. Uh, things that the CDC would say, oh, that's fluorotic enamel. You have to chart that. No, we have to, we have to say thanks. Thank heavens for an occasional fluorotic patient that doesn't have caries by age three. Um, so caries management by risk assessment is something every practice should be doing today. As you see a diverse population, know what the socioeconomic factors are, know what the demographics look like, know if the kiddo's on a, a um, a discount lunch program that those are automatic high risk carries patients, but then start looking at the intraoral aspects and to test, uh, make a little litmus paper test. Is your saliva acidic today? What have you had to eat? Is your saliva naturally buffering? There are tests that can easily identify what the risk factors are, and it turns the patient into then kind of a responsible decision maker based on what they've learned about how to uh, test their own susceptibility to this disease. So CAMBRA is incredibly important, and I didn't mean to, um, to not include it in the presentation, but we talked about a number of different techniques, about new products, about new techniques, and of course, CAMBRA is certainly part of that. Mm -hmm. now, your patient population doesn't necessarily have a lot of um, commercial food, you know, such as processed food with high sugar, though, right? Oh, you, you would think. You yeah. would think that would be the case. But um, what happens in a rural population with limited education is they'll make the wrong choices. Some make their own syrup as a sweetener and they'll say, well, I'm using honey, I'm using syrup. Okay, well, that's not as bad as the super refined. But the other day we had a family come in and they said, we got all the sugar out of our house and I've got this that I'm using now. And I looked at the can and it was concentrated high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. And I, yeah. I said this, of course, that means nothing to them. They said, well, we got rid of sugar, so our cavity problem is gone. No, the cavity problem, just the consistency of the saliva fill mm -hmm. is amazing in somebody that is is high caries risk. 
pure cane sugar is better than high fructose yeah. corn syrup. I mean, that's yes. the worst. That's the worst stuff. Yes. Yeah. So um, in the summertime, when there's vegetables, I think their diet is good. But when mom starts baking in the kitchen uh, the rest of the year, uh, they don't make the wisest choices. That's why I love to see xylitol on the shelf in the grocery store at the Amish store. And I wish we could get xylitol on more shelves and get more people using it. But you're right. They're not big soft drink consumers, um, but they do add things to their tea. They do drink tea and coffee and they add things to it. So we try to figure out what in their diet can be modified, but a lot of it is just a misunderstanding in what causes tooth decay. That's my biggest battle. Yeah, do you think you dedicated your career uh, and so admirably that you've done this to carries management based on your location in, in rural Indiana where you found um, solutions that are not the typical drill and fill solutions where you can actually treat this patient population in a way where they could afford it, where you can manage these patients and, and put the fires out and maintain their, certainly their deciduous teeth until their permanent teeth come in. Was that, is that part of it that you've dedicated your career to this? I, I was lucky enough to get to work with incredibly bright people, with people that thought way outside the box with people that led me places that I didn't think it would be possible to do a filling. And under the shade of a banana plant, we picked up a spoon excavator and we started filling and sealing teeth. And we got to go back to that population because GC had a liberal travel budget and I never flew business class. I'd uh, say, no, I'm going to save my money and do something else with it. They allowed me to take uh, dental students. I taught at University of Nebraska on these outreach trips where we could do ART treatments. And so a lot of times I look at my life and I think this is the perfect place after the perfect opportunity mm -hmm. to see and meet World Health Organization leaders and people like Jeff Knight, and Graham Mount, and he and no people that were from down under, but had a different approach to how caries should be managed. Uh, conservative dental uh, Naren Wilson from the UK, he said, you know, we, we, it's okay to patch a filling. It's okay if we know what we're doing and we're looking at disease and the fact that we're going to restore the disease, we're going to control the disease, but we're also going to restore the tooth and we're going to preserve some uh, tooth structure and some money in the patient's wallet while we're doing it. Yes, I, I think that... Uh, this opportunity is something that yeah, I'm uniquely suited for, and I thank God every day mm -hmm. that I get to do this. Yeah, it sounds like um, it's more gratifying, ironically, to do this kind of work in a lot of ways than, than doing a lot of the over-treatment stuff that's going on out there. You know, the full, that, full mouth reconstruction, heavy cutting of structure for veneers, which hopefully has waned over the years, but... Um, do you know what I'm saying? Are, it's, it just yes. it, it seems like you, you're, the gratification that you've gotten out of this treatment uh, really has been something that's more valuable in a lot of ways than sophisticated roundhouse prosthodontics. But anyway, that's just my opinion. But uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. And uh, hats off to you, Dr. Ewaldson, for all you've done to save patients uh, not only tons of money, but just being conservative with their teeth. And as an endodontist practicing, you know, I saw so much uh, dentistry that was overdone 
you know, it's so much tooth structure removed really unnecessarily. And, uh, these, it's precious. The tooth, the tooth structure is precious because once it's a permanent tooth, it, that's, it is what you have, what you have, and that's it. And it's our job as a doctor to preserve it. And you're certainly doing that with, with these procedures. Um, yes, very well put. And there are bills to pay. There's overhead to be met, but right. there are ways to get reimbursed for being conservative in our philosophy and our in invasiveness when it comes to helping patients. Um, I do have some third party pay, but most of my Amish patients are pay as they go. My fees are low because I'm in a low economic, uh, a, uh, my, the workforce in this area that built my log cabin that I dearly love, uh, built it for $20 an hour. So we, we have kind of our own little economy here in certain ways. But for the practitioners out there that are looking at how do I get reimbursed for being preventive in my scope? Things are changing and there are reimbursement options available that there weren't a few years ago. And if you want to give my email, I, I welcome emails at either conservativedentalsolutions.com. That's the office website. Or you can email me directly n-e-w-o-l-d-s-e-n at gmail.com. So that's n-e-w-l-d-s-e-n at gmail.com. Or as the Germans always told me, new old sen at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you. It's been more than a pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Ewilson, and uh, we've really enjoyed it. And we, we, there's so much more to talk about with you. And I really hope you can join us again for a future podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Klein. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>